Hi, I'm Matika Wilbur. And I'm Adrienne Keen. And you're listening to All My Relations. Welcome back. We're so honored to be with you today. On today's episode, we're exploring the connections between land and body through a conversation with the amazing community organizer, writer, farmer, curator, citizen scientist, and Danae woman, Kim Smith. We learned so much from our conversation with her. And a lot of what I was left thinking about after listening to this episode is the need to take matters into our own hands as Indigenous people. How do we heal the land and ourselves when there isn't anyone else who will do it? How do we start the conversations, collect the stories and the data, and make the needed change ourselves? How can we draw upon our community's strengths and relationships to make that happen? And there's never been a better time to ask that question and to dive into action than right now. Kim Smith is from the Navajo Nation. And as we all know, Navajo Nation is being hit really hard by this pandemic. The Navajo Nation is home to 175,000 people, all of whom who are grossly endangered by the staggering spread of COVID-19 across their homeland. Currently, Navajo has more cases of COVID-19 than eight U.S. states. And in the episode that we did on COVID-19 a couple of episodes ago, in the end of the episode, Dallas and I started to get into this idea of how our relationship to the way that we've treated land with the extractive industries, deforestation, climate change, etc., and how COVID-19 is just one of the many consequences of mismanagement. While for the Navajo Nation, the promised help from the U.S. has been slow to arrive, community has stepped up in its place. In the last few months, networks of mutual aid, systems of food distribution, and outside donations have appeared and continue to grow as the crisis rolls on. The help has come in the form of people helping one another directly. So if you'd like to be a part of those people-to-people networks, there are innumerable GoFundMes, organizations, and places to support. One of my college classmates, Stephanie Sosi, has pulled together a lot of those resources on a single site, which we will link in the episode description as well. But it's indigenouscovidresponse.com. And on the site, there are ways to support monetarily, to support with supplies, or with your knowledge and expertise. What we know is that the way that we treat the land is directly related to the way that we treat our bodies. And that has to do with violence upon the land being directly related to violence upon the body. And there's this idea that I continue to explore in my own work, Adrian. I look at and I ask folks, you know, how have you been impacted by the patriarchy? And one of the massive shifts that we've seen I think in this country is when we shifted from a female-centered horticultural system to a male-dominated agricultural system, we lost our personal connection to land. And when the patriarchy took over, it did so in a very violent way. And that has mirrored what has happened to our bodies. And these are some of the ideas that we're about to jump into with Kim Smith. I just want to acknowledge that the amount of work that she has done and continues to do on this subject is mind-blowing. The impacts are immense, and I'm a huge fan of her work. I'm so honored to have had this conversation with Kim, 
And with that, we'll jump back into our recording with her from a few months back. Sorry. So welcome. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. It is an honor to be here. Um, thank you both for your work that you do within this podcast, but also outside um, of it. Um, you are both an inspiration to me as well. Um, my name is Kim Smith. I am a bitter water woman. Um, I yesi dant na shahagi age ilhotote adok ade tsedok ande adeshin anishto shagun. Hello, relatives. My name is Kim Smith. I am a Dine Bitterwater woman um, who hails from a small village called St. Michael's, Arizona. Um, and now I live in another village, another Dine village called um, Hogback, New Mexico. Thank you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> we are so thrilled that you're here. Kim, let's start the episode off by discussing how you came to understand that violence on the land is violence on our bodies. It took um, me really looking at my spirit, looking at how it is broken um, in the sense of how my body is reacting to the things that are in my environment. Um, I have an autoimmune disease. I have rheumatoid arthritis. Um, and, you know, having that type of disability can be very um, hard. And, you know, feeling the pain, the intense pain, and, you know, thinking about the land and how the land is hurting and, and thinking about it on that context of why. Why is the land hurting and why is my body, my spirit taking that in? Um, and so really expanding on that and thinking about it, but also looking at things on the outside world as well, you know, because there are a lot of communities like my own that are exploited, um, that have these, the rape of the land, as you mentioned. Um, and really the deepest understanding that I had the privilege of learning the most was uh, on our walk, uh, the journey for existence. And what that is, is it was a journey um, of young women organizing uh, a pilgrimage to our sacred mountains. And there's six sacred mountains. And when we first started the walk, we said there's four sacred mountains and come to find there's a lot more than that, you know? Mm -hmm. And so it was really this scouting mission for us of finding our original selves, you know, reconnecting back to our homelands. And um, these mountains are sacred because we believe our deities live there and they're connected to our creation stories. And from 2013 to 2014, we really started to look at our communities, like why are we in the state that we are in? Um, and so in me and my analysis of that, I had to look at where I am rooted and looking at it from that type of lens, you know, there is a coal mine five miles away to the east of me. And then to the south of me, there is a transfer station for gas and natural gas. Mm -hmm. And so really looking at it like in that context of, okay, this is how the community, this is how the earth is being broken. And this is why I'm 
broken, essentially. Um, and so it was really this idea of the, this idea that was planted into me of, okay, how are you going to heal it? How are you going to make things better? And I've been taking, you know, taking the prayers to the mountain is something that has helped me to do all of the healing that I feel I have done up until this point. And that really shows the connection, the power of the reconnection that we have to the earth and to the deities and to these sacred places. And also the responsibility really that it takes to, to make those pilgrimages, to be in tune with nature, with the elements. Um, as Dana people, the elements are our deities. Water is a deity, air is a deity. And, you know, we need those things to live. And when you're connected with that, it's so healing. And, and I feel that. And it came from the walk. <laughs> mm. Can you tell us a little bit more about the walk? Um, how long was it? How long were you on the road? What were some of the things that you saw on this journey? Uh, so in the Nihigal Be'ina journey for existence, we walked over 1,400 miles in the span of a year. Um, we started in the winter, and the choice to go in the winter had to do with the uh, um, in honor of our ancestors who were forced to go on the mm -hmm. long walk in the dead of winter. Like if, you know, we want to um, honor them. And so we left in the winter. And um, for me, I think of it as a modern day scouting. What, what type of monsters are on our land? Mm -hmm. It's a lot different when you're walking on the land as, as opposed to driving through it, you know? Um, you feel, you hear, you smell, um, you, you, you hear different things, and at the same time, you're connecting the dots and listening to elders and community members and sharing stories, and, you know, you're remembering or reconnecting to um, these places and it's just so incredible and that's where I met Matika um, she came and photographed us on our first leg of the walk mm -hmm. and um, it the feeling and the things that we have seen um, it's so mind-boggling that we are we were and continually are in that state you know you think of um, this was really before the MMIW um, awareness really came about. Like we were starting to see it and hear it in um, the Chaco Canyon region where they were proposing fracking and, you know, the beginning of seeing and hearing it come into our communities um, was really shocking and scary. But really what we wanted to do was figure out how do we come up with protocol for these types of things? You know, how do we keep these predators off of our territory? Mm -hmm. How do we like reenact warrior societies? And, you know, how do we defend our communities? Um, because when we do that, we're able to defend our spirits, right? Mm -hmm. um, and it was just the huge, every season we would go to the next mountain. And, you know, that all of the, the, the element of the seasons changing were also something really beautiful, you know, to be able to walk in the spring and then have new thoughts and more connections through prayer and song and ceremony and community members. Like, it was just this huge growing curve. Um, you know, it was five years ago, um, and wow. we were all really young, and we were going, we were doing something that had never been done mm -hmm. before. Um, it, there were places that we went where community member elders would be like, we've been waiting for you. 
there was a woman that came up to us and said, I had a dream about y'all like five years ago and and you you were coming and here you are, you know, to just hear and awaken our people that way. And um, it has definitely really shaped the work that I'm doing up until now to Mm -hmm. really know like, okay, when you went on your scouting mission, these are the things that you found out. Um, But also there's just so many layers of things that we have to help heal in our communities but the underlying the the basis that we need the to to get to our healing is healing the land and thinking about how all of the different ways that we are exploiting it Mm -hmm. so the way the way I was thinking about about the walk and what I learned while I was out there and and thinking about the extractive oil industries and fracking and and the damage that it causes to our bodies, but also realizing that along with the extractive oil industry comes these man camps. Mm-hmm. And what surrounds those man camps is a lot of violence. Mm-hmm. And it's, so it's we see these sort of hot zones for disruption to the safety of our women. And a, a lot of it is in these places where there's a predominant source of extractive oils, right? Mm-hmm. And so in Navajo Nation, you have, a, you know, at that time there was a lot of fracking. I'm not sure if it's still, if there's still a lot of fracking, mm-hmm. but we see it in the oil fields in, in North Dakota. We see it down in places in Florida. And, and I understand that, you know, maybe your work with Honor the Earth and, and what you saw on your scouting mission could help us to understand that more because I don't know that people really realize the deep connection there. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. So the area that um, the region on our territory that there w- there is this fracking boom um, is right outside of um, a national sacrifice zone, essentially. Um, Ronald Reagan in 1974, he deemed it a national sacrifice zone. Um, and basically what that means is that it opened it up to all types of different explorations for oil, for gas, for coal. Um, they have two coal-fired power plants there, um, Monsanto fields. So it's just all of this, all of this bad in one region. Um, and you, if you think about it in that context, then you see the different waves that this is before. This has always happened to our communities. It's not a wave of something new. Like this violence is deeply embedded in the history of. Um, where our people essentially so just to reiterate that the president reagan chose a spot in navajo lands and said we're just gonna literally sacrifice this land to figure out what is there that we can exploit right because there was only i think it was something like two less than two thousand people that live there which is why they justified it well there's not really that many people that live here so Wow. Yeah. And that it's even called a sacrifice a zone. A national sacrifice zone. I've never even heard of that. Yeah. That is so... It, it, when you think about the Diné politics of it, it, they go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. Like they're, you know, the government always has a hand with the industry. And yeah. so they play hand in hand, you know, mm-hmm. they perpetrate, you know, and it's, it's just the, the cycle that it goes in. And our nation, unfortunately, is tied to each of these industries. Right. We get royalties from each of these industries. We're dependent on these industries. Um, and that's a really tough component, especially going into 2020 when we're in this climate crisis because we contributed to the problems. We've contributed to the exploitation of our land um, and that's so heartbreaking because mm-hmm. that that shows how disconnected we are to the land. 
Mm. Yeah, you bring up a valid point, which is when I've, whenever I've attempted to have this conversation publicly, especially with, uh, you know, like a, a non-ally, non-ally community, I find that people say, well, you know, you participate, you drive a car, you're, you know, you came here on a plane. It's, you know, on our, in Swinomish where I'm at, we have, uh, well, it used to be called Texaco. Now it's Shell, but it's a refinery. Mm -hmm. And the result of that refinery is increased asthma, increased birth defects, increased, um, uh, allergies and you know like on and on and on and we know that it's dramatically impacted the health and well-being of mm -hmm. the salmon and we believe mm -hmm. where I'm from the salmon is who we are like the salmon is our in Lummi they would say Shalane and it's our way of life and we know that our way of life has been dramatically disrupted by this refinery however it's our own people and our own leaders mm -hmm. that continue to allow this to really yep. sort of go on within our community and so the difficult part of this discussion is that our people are complicit in this problem. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> that's to say that not all of us feel like it's a good idea, but it, it's complicated because there's a much, uh, a lot of educating that we have to do within our own communities. Mm -hmm. But also checking our privileges too, because energy privilege is a thing. Like our community, Diné Nation, they generate so much in resources and energy. Um, and just like you're saying, we contribute. So we have to check our energy privileges. Like when we turn on that light switch, where does that energy come from? It could come from nuclear power, which mm -hmm. means uranium. Um, it could be coal firepower plant, which goes into, you know, the, the, all of the coal ash and the pollution of the air. You know, there's just all of these different um components that we have to think about when we're consuming um, and it's not just an indigenous thing anymore it's us as humans how much are we consuming because then that ties into capitalism mm -hmm. and we have to we really have to change our ways and sometimes it worries me because it doesn't seem like a lot of people are really thinking about the climate crisis that we're in like it, no one's in crisis mode mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and so we really have to think about that like do we really need to have lawns you know, do we have to waste our water on things like that? Do we have to have a city in the middle of the desert that just keeps growing and growing? Um, because that all ties into the energy grid and that ties into the exploitation of indigenous communities for their resources. Um, and where we come from, it's super hard because you're caught, you're really pushed into this corner and you're held as economic hostages because, you know, 85% of your tribal revenue comes from these industries. And people don't want to talk about the health impacts or the health effects because, you know, don't bite the hand that feeds you. And, you know, it's just so complex. And we really have to dig deeper into going back to our original selves of living sustainably and connecting more to the earth and only taking what we need or using what we need. Um, yeah, it's it's a lot <laughs> <laughs> it's a nice light conversation for all of you some light listening on your way to work <laughs> you made this connection of seeing that needing to 
heal yourself by healing the land, Mm -hmm. that there is a connection there between the two, that they go hand in hand or healing the land by healing yourself. Mm -hmm. So once you realized that healing was needed, what kind of steps did you take? I think the hardest um, step for me was self-care, you know, drawing a line and saying, no, I shouldn't take on that many projects. Like I really have to think about, and my friends and family would tell me this all the time (laughs) you know you need to slow down you need to to rest and um doing that was so hard for me but the reward of it was very um it was very tremendous uh because it really did allow me to go back to my original self and looking at the the place where i grew up i moved back there um, and I walked the land, you know, I walked where my, my, um, grandmother, my grandmother and father, my grandmother and grandfather's land and really was like searching for them really and, and figuring out, okay, how do I reconnect to them? Um, they've, they both had passed and, um, it really opened my eyes to how, um, I need to figure out how I can heal myself without, the influence of IHS, like that is something that's very real in our communities, Mm. Um, that abuse of power, that abuse of knowledge and seeing it and not wanting to go to go down that route, but also doing research on to like, what do these medicines do to you? Like Mm. what, what, you know, there's a lot of toxicity within that Um, or dependence or addiction, you know, um, abuse, substance abuse and things like that. And so, um, I went sober. Um, I haven't, I've, I've been five years sober now. That was one of the biggest steps for me. Um, and it really opened up my lens to a completely different way of seeing things and, and thinking about things. And um, I also understand that, you know, and the walk taught me a lot about this is that there, I have a privilege of being connected to who I am as a Dine woman because I grew up with my grandparents. I know the language. Um, I go to ceremony. You know, they, they embedded that in me. And there's a lot of folks that don't have that luxury. And so, um, you know, just really cherishing that and nourishing it um, and upholding that responsibility of, okay, um, your grandma would have this ceremony all the time. Now it's your turn. And then, you know, that pride of doing that on my own, you know, not having uh, an adult or an elder um, to help me do these things, but also reconnecting to the people that we met on the walk, you know, the elders and the medicine people, going back and checking in with them, and then also teaching me how I uphold those responsibilities. And so that in itself was really what helped me to go back to these places to remind myself of how, what self-care really looks like for me. Um, and then that grew into understanding food better. Mm-hmm. Um, and because food is a big part of our ceremony. Um, and I'm not talking about like mutton stew and <laughs> fry bread and things like that, but really about foraging with the things that are in our backyard. How do you prepare those things? How do you pray to them? How do you make offerings to them so that you can harvest? How much do you need? Um, what do you need to do so that when you take, when you take from it, it will replenish itself for the next for others and for the next season and so that was also a very humbling experience um because it allowed me to change my diet of like you know that that decolonial process if you will of looking at the things that are in our communities that are offered in our communities I think there's only like 
seven or eight grocery stores within the span of our um, of our territory. Our territory is the size of Ireland, um, so just thinking of that visually, um, you know, it's pretty. Uh, disheartening when you think about it but the reality is is that we can harvest things in our backyards if we wanted to and those foods are medicine and um it really did help me heal um I lost 35 pounds at that point as well and um it really prepared me at that time it really prepared me for the walk um it really helped me to be um that leader, that older sister. I was one of the older folks mm. in the walk too. So it was um, a responsibility to help navigate a group of young people um, collectively. How are we going to be road warriors together? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, like, how are we going to live together as nomads and take care of each other and protect our spirits? And, you know, it was, it really helped prepare me um, for the work that I'm doing now. Um, in 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 that sense of healing myself you know i was able to become healthier know what triggers my body what triggers the uh, the flare-ups that i have um, how to avoid them you know just really being in tuned and listening to my body um and we still make our our pilgrimages um since the end of the walk and so those prayers are what is manifesting a lot of the healing and the work that i'm able to do now Mm. And could you tell us a little bit about the process that you and your partner and a bunch of community people underwent um, to actually clean up the land where you came from and build things and kind of start um, anew in that space? Yeah. So last summer, um, one of the one of the projects that I've always had in in my mind to do is there is a huge number of illegal trash dumps. Um, throughout our territory. Um, there's a lot of it within my, my, where I live as well because there's a lot of canyons and ditches and things like that. So it's kind of like out of sight, out of mind type mm-hmm. of thing. People are either throwing their trash in these illegal landfills or they're burning their trash or um, they drive it from where they live to the nearest, um, you know, trash bin because our tribe doesn't really provide those for our community members. Um, but really connecting that part of abuse to the land, like that, that is a type of abuse that's contaminating our watershed because a lot of these illegal dumps are in our watersheds. Um, but prior to that, I did a lot of work around sustainability and conservation and water catchment systems, like uh, water quality sampling. Um, I worked with an organization called the Little Colorado River um, Water Association and LCRWCA. Is that what it? Anyway. <laughs> um, and so we were able to, we were basically forced to figure out how we defend our water because the state of Arizona was trying to have make us settle our claims to the Little Colorado River um, because of the cities, um, because of the coal-fired power plants that needed cooling. And so we really had to figure out as community members, how do we... Um, capture our water how do we even see what's in it Mm because nobody's doing any of these studies Mm -hmm. um 
so that way when the feds come at us, we have a plan, right? So we started doing all of these different pilot projects um, along the Little Colorado River within our territories. And so that kind of gave me a background um, of, okay, this is how you catch water. This is how you detoxify the soil and yada, yada, yada. And so I figured, okay, I want to do this in my backyard. I want to honor my grandparents in that way of, you know, cleaning up some of the things that are within um, our family land. And it was one of the most invigorating processes and healing processes um, to, to be able to do this and just see the different levels of colonialism, of capitalism. Um, the town where I come from is called, uh, the settler name is St. Michael's, um, and the name kind of says it all. Mm -hmm. It was settled by the Catholic Church, um, and then the Sisters of the Blessed Sacrament, they built an Indian school there, which became a boarding school called St. Michael's. Um, so it's just all of these deep layers of colonialism, um, but also this is the central area where indigenous people were traded. Um, there was a lot of traffic, human trafficking, um, and there was also a lot of traders that were within this area. And so thinking about the land in that context and looking at a trash dump, like these different layers of it and connecting the two, you know, there the, the very bottom layer was mainly tin. And then it started transitioning into glass and then started transitioning into plastics. And so it just was this interesting um Archaeology, yeah, really. right. Archaeology of of how we consume or how mm -hmm. we were introduced to capitalism, um, and and just also how it grew from just this small amount of cans to something bigger, 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 um, and it really made me think about how we were taught to consume through capitalism, um, but we weren't necessarily shown how to dispose of those things, mm -hmm. you know, and that's how these landfills really came to be, and so. Um, within a week, we were able to clean up this illegal trash dump. It was probably about half an acre, oh, I would man. say. Um, and it was really grimy and gross, but <laughs> I think I, that's like my favorite kind of work <laughs> is to just get in there and dirty and help make something so beautiful again. Mm -hmm. um, and so once it was cleaned, we planted sunflowers because sunflowers are known, known to detoxify the soil and the mm -hmm. water. And so um, the next phase is building a ceremonial home there. Um, to help balance the um, the healing that needs to happen there and we are doing we are building the house with no fossil fuels um, all by hand uh, my partner and I are even harvesting the the logs ourselves and using an axe to do it and you know just trying to be really mindful in in the way that we're going to build this home and, and honor the ancestors and really honor that land and help heal it and help the water. Um, so the, the other interesting part about why this is so important to me is because as I, as I had mentioned, um, the Catholic Church is there and they own a huge majority of the water rights within um, this area. Really? And so where we live is right at the base of a mountain. So the watershed feeds their water rights. And so we have this responsibility to, you know, make sure that the water that we can harvest within that area, that it's clean. Um, but also, if we're not harvesting this water and taking care of it, then it goes to the church rather than our community members. Mm. 
So it's just this huge responsibility Mm -hmm. to make sure that, you know, our future generations, my nieces and nephews, and we will all have clean water Mm -hmm. to be able to harvest. Wow. That's a wild story. (laughs) And like such powerful work to just think about like that one half acre, like the impact that that one half acre can have Mm. on the entire community and that it was such a community grounded process too, like bringing everyone together. Mm. And I know you brought like folks from different schools and stuff Mm. to come through and help with different aspects of it and how much uh, power can come from that journey together, Mm. like that it is just such a collective um, and it's so, so important. Right. And the other really cool part that I like about this cleanup is that we tried to use, reuse a lot of the things mm. that we were finding in these trash dumps. Like I have shelves, like things that we've turned into shelves, <laughs> <laughs> things that we use for like indigenous goddess gang pop-up shops, like the materials, the recycled, reclaimed wood and um, the glass, you know, anything that we could recycle, we did. Um, yeah, and it's it's so beautiful to think about mm-hmm. how that land is now and just the process of it and wanting to do it for so many years and now it's done. <laughs> um, and so this that component of the work is definitely something that we're taking into the work that we're doing now mm-hmm. um, around the closure of the coal fire power plants and this health impact assessment that we're working on and this just transition. The just transition also has to encompass how we detox the soil and the water and you know they go hand in hand and this project uh, this pilot project that we did is an example that it can and does work Kim, tell us a little about your travels and and this work that you've done visiting with other communities and reconnecting with not just the land, but with and creating relationship with other activists, land defenders, water defenders, and how that impacted the work that you then brought home. Mm-hmm. So after we did, after I was, participated in the walk, um, it was going, I really wanted to go to other resistance camps, other resistance communities in, in across Turtle Island and see how they're defending their, their communities um, or what types of things they are um, trying to fight and, you know, really trying to rebuild or reintroduce ourselves to our different kinships and relatives. Um, and really this idea of looking at economy and, and how our food um, is a part of our ancestral economy if you will you know food and seeds and water those are the basis for a lot of that um, trading that happened um, throughout different intertribal relationships and so it was really important to go to these places to reestablish that kinship but also um, 
take a lesson on how ways that you can defend your territory or ways that the feds are and the industry are coming into these communities, but also the intersections of what's happening in those communities is happening in our communities. Um, so really looking at solidarity in a whole different framework, um, but also trying to host benefit shows. You know, as grassroots organizers, a lot of us aren't um, a part of NGOs. Um, you know, a lot of the work that we're doing is out of the kindness of our hearts and, um, you know, we're financially supporting it as well. Um, and so really looking at it in that context of, okay, how could we bring our communities together to come up with resources that we can give to these communities to help them buy groceries or, you know, have gas money, just the little things like that, you know? Um, and so it was really tiring. <laughs> we went down as far as Chiapas. We had a fundraiser where we raised $10,000 and we divvied that up between four um, resistance camps that we visited um, and, you know, help them with the different projects that they were trying to get off of the ground. And at the EZLN Liberation School, they were hoping to start a food forest. So part of the money went to that and to be able to go to these places and say, hey, we're back and just rebuilding these relationships. And um, a lot of the Chiapas communities, they still speak their indigenous language and there's five different languages there. And and Spanish would be the sixth, and then English is the seventh, and then when we were there, Diné was the eighth, mm. and so it was this long process of like translating things and learning from one 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 another. Um, we were able to go up to uh, the Unistoten camp in Leilu Island. It, um, we went out to visit with Leduc on their um, ride along the pipeline, and um, we, that's how we ended up in Standing Rock. Um, we were in Standing Rock um, before the huge um, camp that it became, and you know, we were there when there was like a handful of people there, like just feeling hopeless and just trying to reinvoke and. Um, ceremony and you know try and uplift spirits because what they, it, it didn't seem like they were going to win the battle and you know the steam the the self-esteem and the the spirit of the camp um really needed an uplifting and then a week later tons thousands of people started showing up and so to be a part of that process and and be there and know that we raised funds to go and help these communities has really helped shape us to think about what a regenerative future looks like for our communities you know something that's based in indigenous knowledge indigenous lens and um you know these different stories that people from all of these places that we visited have taught us but also remembering them in prayer remembering mm -hmm. them in ceremony too because they're doing the same exact work that we're doing as well that must have been so cool you know it's important to tell those stories because Many of our people in our communities don't have the chance to travel. Right. And so it's really important that we go home, we share what we learned. Mm -hmm. You know, we share with other communities and we, we continue to spread that knowledge as like as a form of medicine. Right. You know. And, and also see the differences of like people who live within quote unquote reservations or reserves because they're their every day is different from folks that live in like metropolitan areas mm -hmm. and um, they don't necessarily have that opportunity to voice what they're going through or people to talk to, you know, and um, 
I really carry that to heart in really thinking about the grassroots organizers, you know, the sacrifices that they make, you know, um, every day to defend their, their land and, and their livelihood. And um, it has definitely made me a stronger organizer. Mm-hmm. And part of that sharing back and that teaching and earlier we were talking about the need to um, talk to our own people about some of these things that are going on with the environment and our role in it. And I know that you and your partner have embarked on this journey of creating a health impact assessment Mm -hmm. and would love to hear about that process and how it ties into those teachings that you received in all of your travels as well. Yeah, um, it has really shaped us to figure out, okay, you need a plan. What is, what's the plan in five years, 10 years? Because our leadership isn't planning past what their elected term is going to be. Mm -hmm. And so that's problematic because then it's just like these same politicians doing the same things. Um, But there's no, and there's no involvement within the community members because they feel so helpless. And so we wanted to do a health impact assessment that helped harness those ideas and frustrations from community members. Um, We're working on a health impact assessment in the northern agency of our community. Um, And in this area, there are two cold fire power plants. And these two cold fire power plants are on um, opposite sides of the San Juan River. And they have been there for the past 50 years. Um, They have made the top 10 dirtiest coal-fired power plants year after year. Mm. Um, And within all of this, uh, within the existence of these power plants, there has never been any studies done by Diné people, for Diné people. Um, And so there's no baseline for Mm. what types of health disparities there are. Mm. Um, The other harsh component to this is, as I mentioned earlier, it's a national sacrifice zone. So there are all of these different forms of toxicity just kind of brewing within this area for the past um, 50 years or so. Um, And so we have a food truck um, and we serve ancestral foods and we're visiting every village within Northern Agency and telling the folks, telling the people within these communities that the um, we want to know if you have any health disparities. Um, We want to to compile the data so that we can take it to the state of New Mexico and take it to PNM to give proof that it really is making our people sick. Um, and this is how, and, and so really digging deep and gathering that data, um, because the San Juan Generating Station is set to close in 2022. Um, they originally thought that they would um, be open until 2055. And so now they filed for abandonment. And so what that means is they want to completely abandon the power plant, um, the coal mine, the cleanup, any of that. They just want to completely abandon. Um, and they can do that? And they can do that. And who, the state of doing this? the PNM, the owners of the the coal fire power plant as well as the coal mine. So they literally can just say, We've had this coal plant open for decades and decades and now we're done and we're just gonna walk away. Peace. Yep. And so it gets worse than that because the state of New Mexico is allowing them to collect profits that they would be missing out of because they're closing early. 
So that comes out to $380 million that PNM, um, through the Energy Transition Act that was passed in January, they are going to get the $380 million of lost profits because they're closing earlier. And none of that money is going back into community oh members, impacted community members um, downstream. Um, this is also super frustrating because the community members don't even know that the power plant is going to close because nobody is going into these communities and telling them, okay, we have to figure out what our plan is going to be because our biggest source of income um, as well as our jobs are going to be gone in a couple of years. So we're the ones who are doing it. Um, you know, we're working on this health impact assessment and we're gathering um, surveys and we're doing our presentations all in Diné. Um, and that in itself is something that is so empowering because nobody does these. Mm -hmm. Nobody, no young people are going into our communities and presenting this knowledge all in Diné from a Diné lens for Diné people and giving them the opportunity to say how they feel about it. Mm. Um, and there's a lot of uh, trauma within that for these community members because the type of researchers that they are used mm -hmm. to are a lot of academic folks that are working on their PhD. They come in, extract what they need, and then leave and write their books or whatever. And there's never really a report back. Um, there, there's also other examples of like surveys coming in where they only have like 30 surveys and there's like 10,000 people that live in this area and that those, that small amount of surveys are going to set the precedence for, you know, um, everyone, everything, yeah. everyone. And so it just becomes super frustrated and frustrating, um, so what we do is we serve ancestral foods um, and we educate the community on what is happening um, as well as, you know, go through the survey and translate and help people fill it out. Um, and it's it's such a huge learning curve. Like I've been doing this work for like 12 years and it's frustrating for me because like I'm like, damn, I I. I messed a lot of steps in this work. Like, for example, most folks don't even know what climate change is. Like, that, that something so simple, like, wow, how did I miss that in this, mm. this fight? Like, as an environmentalist, as a land defender, as a water protector, that I couldn't even go back to my community members and explain to them what climate change is and assume that they know, right? Um, or even the, the ability to read the surveys. Mm. Like, some folks went as far as like third grade and you have to go and it's just this huge learning curve and humbling um work but also nourishing our communities and reintroducing them to ancestral foods to be able to break bread prepare this meal with them and then break bread with them and then strategize for okay this power plant's closing down we have this opportunity to do this health impact assessment and give it to the state so that we can get funds for our health care. Um, there is no library within this community that we live in. Um, there is, you know, their education system is below par, the roads, like just everything. It, you know, most extractive industries are billionaires at mm -hmm. this point. And we've been in this game for 50 years, but we're still living in poverty. And we're like trying to catch crumbs if they're even going to give us any. And so it's like super frustrating. Um, and there's also no baseline for this health impact assessment. Um, you know, there's a variety of different ailments that we're um, 
the data that we're collecting, um, there's a lot of uh, uncertainty with a mm. lot of people, especially the power plant workers, because they that's all they know, really. Um, I went out to um, Nevada. I, I did this project. I went to all of the different coal plants on reservations. Before the Trump administration, the only active coal plants and coal refineries in all of the United States were all on reservation land. Mm. And that's a really important thing to acknowledge <clears throat> because we know that there have been other studies done in these communities, and I'll send you this, those studies from that community so you can sort of see how it, it mirrors yours. Mm -hmm. But um, we know that coal burning and coal extraction is one of the most harmful industries to human existence. Mm. And so they found extremely high birth defects. Mm. Women, uh, women, uh, like 60 or 70% of their women were miscarrying, mm. at, you know, in the first three months of conception. And then we, there was babies being born, you know, with like things coming out of their head and major deformities. And it was directly related to what had happened to the water mm. there and to the contamination in the water. And they had to sue, and it was like a 20-year lawsuit. They never won. Um, they sued again. They finally won. They got it shut down, but the Trump administration reopened it. And so the wild part about this, about this industry, is that it's mostly happening on reservation mm -hmm. land and mostly happening to Native people. Mm -hmm. And so we have to keep making the correlation that violence on land is violence on our bodies. Right. And that systemic injustice and racism is re always related to safety of body mm -hmm. right. right and the patriarchy like That's i'm getting like it's so crazy to think about the the way that the patriarchy is enforced in our communities and how it goes hand in hand with the abuse of the land like sometimes we're presenting and the men won't talk to me and they'll only talk to makai like that's how embedded the patriarchy is. And most most times it's the coal miners or the power plant workers that are doing those types of things, you know. And a lot of the people in positions of power are the same exact way. Like they become threatened, um, which is sad because we're a matrilineal society, you know. And um, we should have clan mothers a part of these conversations and they should have the floor, but the men don't allow for that space a lot of the time. Well, I, I want to take a moment to acknowledge what you said about the way you're conducting this research, and thank you for that. Mm -hmm. It's it's really actually an entire shift in the in a, a paradigm shift, as we mm -hmm. as people say. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. I've been a part of research projects um, that have not been that were not done in a good way, mm -hmm. and I think there's something so powerful about you saying we have this food truck and. We, and that's where we it starts. spread the table with ancestral food. Mm -hmm. That's profound. That's mm -hmm. an, a, a profound awareness. Mm -hmm. And then we present in our language mm -hmm. to our elders. Mm -hmm. It's an incredible service, and it's very rarely done. Yep. And so I just want to raise my hands to you, and, you know, say thank you for that and Absolutely. modeling yeah. that. It's really important, and I feel honored, you know, to he get to hear about it. And I hope that those listening can think about that, you mm. know, in, in their work with Indian country, because way too often do we have 
researchers come mm-hmm. to our community and it's only for the benefit of their own selves. Mm-hmm. And that research doesn't go back into community and they certainly don't spread the table. Mm-hmm. You know, and so this is, um, this is groundbreaking work and mm. it's really important work. Thank you. It's one of the things that had led us to knowing how what works and what doesn't work or what hasn't been done is, and also one of the biggest challenges of this work is the um, institutional review board Mm -hmm. and how I I have to be a citizen scientist and we can't go before the IRB because we don't have the credentials to be, uh, um, what is a PI? A primary investigator. Primary investigator. Um, you have to have like all of these certifications and yada, yada, yada. But I feel like the work that we're doing is we're getting our PhD mm-hmm. in, in a different way, you know, ancestrally, if you will. You know, we're becoming wizards. Like it's we're taking this different route of really acquiring our ancestral knowledge and trying to think things clearly through a Dinell lens because that's what's going to save us. Mm our systems of accountability to our communities and like wanting to do good work and the ways that we like think about like feeding people the ways we think about like reciprocity and um that of course the research needs to be something that's in service of the community and all of those things that are just kind of inherent to being good relatives Mm -hmm. and like in good relation don't translate very well into their little boxes on Mm -hmm. the form and so i have spent hours on the phone being like, yeah, I'm going to do observations at College Horizons. No, I'm not going to sit and have 140 students get their parents to sign a permission slip mm-hmm. for me to talk with them. Like, it's going to be okay, I promise. <laughs> like, So it's just a lot of these conflicts between like the Western science side of things and the um, the community grounded. So I think having this model of what you're doing is really powerful to tell people like there's another way, there's mm-hmm. a third way. Like there's, it doesn't have to be this exploitative Western research. It, it doesn't have to be through the channels that we've established. There can be this other way that is outside of that. And right. that can be equally, if not more powerful. Yeah. And I had the privilege. I'm how I even learned about the institutional review board is I got like a summer job there or a part-time job. Um, and that's how I learned about the process of it. Cause I didn't, I didn't go into higher education to where I needed to do like a thesis mm-hmm. or a dissertation. Um, but the process of everything really just slows things down. And we don't have that time because PNM is filing for abandonment. Like we don't have the time. Yeah. We don't have the time to go through these formalities. Um, And we are, we really want to educate our communities and empower them to help figure out what this transition is going to look like. And it's, it's, uh, it's so much work, but it's something that is so powerful and so beautiful um, and so humbling, you know, Mm -hmm. like it's a shame that more, industries or politicians don't go back to their to these communities because there's so much knowledge Mm -hmm. and so much power there there's so many answers for the way out but they're just not taking the time they want to go the easy route you know let's just go to a chapter meeting real quick and get our resolution and be out 
Um, but one of the things that is really guiding our work is we have um, different advisory committees. Mm. So we have an elders advisor uh, advisor circle. We have a youth advisor circle. We have an academic um, circle of folks who are actually in academia who could help us figure out loopholes for not mm-hmm. having to go before the IRB. Um, and we also have like uh, different folks in the resistance to help us kind of figure out, you know, what's happening with the fossil fuel industry like on a national level, on an international level. So there's just these different um, pods of knowledge that are helping us navigate how to do this health impact assessment right. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, it's very grounded in ceremony. Um, I think that's one thing that a lot of us forget to do. Like the, the first thing we should be doing is ceremony to help us ask for guidance on how to move forward mm-hmm. in anything that we're doing mm-hmm. so that we're doing it in, 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 in the right way. Um, for our people and by our people. That's perfect. Mm. Aside from the work that we're doing within the food truck and the HIA um, gathering, we're also going to other indigenous communities throughout New Mexico and doing the same thing that we did before and going to these impacted communities, but this is more at a, a more communal level, you know, from where we're from. And so we're reconnecting with Pueblos and youths mm. and really talking about, okay, this is what's happening because it affects them too. You know, these are, we're neighbors. Right. And so we have to really call them in and really help figure out a plan. Um, but also that means we have to keep up with the policy side of everything. So having to keep up with what's happening at the legislature, um, we spent a huge, po- a huge part of, uh, January and February, duking it out with the state legislatures, with a lot of these um, environmental organizations like um, Sierra Club and mm. 350.org, you know, who are basically on the side of PNM, but they're supposed to be these allies in the work. And so just completely forgetting that they are indigenous territories, that um, their power is coming off of the back of indigenous communities, the luxuries that they're having are coming off of the back of indigenous people and also talking about climate change and the Green New Deal, Mm. but completely excluding indigenous communities to be a part of the conversation. And so it was a lot of really um, going into these places and taking up as much space as possible to tell them, you know, hey, what about the indigenous people? Have you consulted them? And so with the Energy Transition Act that was passed, which is essentially PNM's bailout, um, there was no tribal consultation within it whatsoever. It was created over the span of two years. Um, Sierra Club and 350.org, PNM, they all kind of, they all played a hand in crafting this bill. Um, and there was no representation from any indigenous communities until we told them, hey, what happened to, was there any indigenous consultation within this? Yeah. Um, but also what is the transition plan? Like, have you gone to these community members and asked them or told them that you plan to shut down the power plant? Um, and so we had to be there day after day in the roundhouse, like reminding them over and over again. Um, but essentially the bill ended up getting, um, There was a lot of different uh, resolutions within it. Um, They were able to finally include um, tribal consultation, indigenous um, consultation within that. And so now the Public Regulations Commission is forcing PNM to go to four communities, only four, 
to go to four communities out of the 34 um, to t tell them like, hey, we're we're planning to leave. And um, of course, none of these are done in Diné language. Of course, there is no time for question and answer, like nothing. It's it's super frustrating. Um, but also they were they also added that there is going to be more money for training for um Diné power plant and uh, miners to transition to other jobs or pick up other fields like renewable energy um, trainings and things like that. But that isn't even that's just like the bare minimum. Mm -hmm. You know, we wrote um, we wrote a manifesto, so to speak, and we really wanted them to acknowledge the indigenous communities that they have impacted, whose land that they're occupying, um, and acknowledge a lot of the, the the things that come along with these industries, from reproductive justice issues to health impacts to air, water quality standards, you know, uh, food quality, mm -hmm. you know, all of these different things, water. Um, the increase of um, violence against women, missing and murdered indigenous relatives, drug use, different drugs that are coming in, you know. We put all of that into this manifesto, um, but also we put it in our HIA. Mm. And that was one of the things that we kind of got a lot of um, resistance from was, you know, writing that question of have you seen a missing and murdered indigenous women increase within our communities like mm -hmm. right now there's i see a missing Diné person like s flyers up like every week mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it's definitely this increase and um you know there's this this idea of you don't talk about those things but we should talk about these things so that we can figure out how we come up with protocols mm -hmm. to prevent these types of things, to, to mm -hmm. start making these demands for what we want our transition to look like when this power plant closes down. And that's deeply embedded in healing the land and being on the land and figuring out how we reverse these toxins to make mother feel whole again. Because just like we said in the beginning of this, you know, once we heal the land, then we heal ourselves. One of the things that has come up a couple of times is this idea of patriarchy and mm -hmm. the ways that uh, we come from matriarchal communities that um, that has been taken from us because of colonialism. Mm -hmm. And you are also the creator of this incredible online digital magazine and space um, called Indigenous Goddess Gang. And I see it as this incredible indigenous feminist empowering space that lets us think about really how to celebrate who we are as indigenous women, indigenous femmes, um, and wanted to hear from you about how you think about that space as working in with all of this other work, how it works in conjunction, and the role that you see indigenous goddess gang as playing in this work as well. Hmm. Yeah, I with indigenous goddess gang, when it was birthed, I guess. <laughs> it was this idea of me knowing a lot of incredible women and femmes that are doing so much 
necessary work. And also thinking about, like, for instance, when I mentioned the walk and how there were a lot of indigenous folks that don't have that connection to that knowledge, um, even if it's just like the bare minimum or the basis knowledge of, you know, indigenous midwifery mm-hmm. or seed keeping, you know, just trying to um, spark that interest or planning because that those are all things necessary for planning for what's coming um and it just kind of fell into place organically you know a lot of the women um were on board with the magazine and it was something that I've always wanted to do um when I was in college I thought okay I think an online magazine would be really cool um but I'm glad that it didn't happen then because then it wouldn't have been as powerful as it is now because of all of the the much needed work that has been done within that time um and I just really want to be able to help create a space for us to reclaim that knowledge and and feel like it's okay that we can it, it's it's okay and it's powerful and it's medicine to go back to our original selves And matriarchs carry that, you know, that's why we're still here. And I think people um, tend to forget that. And in in Diné culture, um, the patriarchy is fueled by yajing out. And so yaj is basically like a word for like babying our men. Mm. Like we wait on them hand and foot. And and we say, oh, shiaj, and things like that. And it makes our men super comfortable. Um, And our women are also the ones who are enabling that. And so it's it's really um, drawing the line and making our stance on, yeah, you can be tender and loving, but you also have to really enforce the responsibilities of the the matriarch medicine and magic, what, what have you, because it's there and it's necessary and we need it to continue to move on as indigenous people and it has allowed us to get to where we are. Um, when we started uh, Indigenous Goddess Gang, I think we had like six sections and now it's grown double. Um, and we want to be, we, we, it's beautiful because it shows how much this, this medicine is necessary and how many of us carry it, you know, and there's so much beauty and power within that. Um, and I don't, I didn't expect it to get as big as it did, like as it has. And I think that's so much it's so beautiful. Um, but also I, I feel bad because like I'm doing all of this other work and I can't imagine what it could be like if we could just do it full time, Mm -hmm. like how much power that could be. But I, I think it's good too, though, because it's a good balance. One of the things that I've learned is that like really have to navigate, um, the groundwork, the the grassroots work, which is like the HIA, the national work and international work, you know, with Indigenous Goddess Gang or Frontline Defenders. Like it's just all of these different ways of um, contributing to the, the reclaiming of our power of that matriarch medicine, of that matriarch economy. That's really what I feel is going to save us. And Indigenous Goddess Gang helps harness that and helps remind everybody that, you know, and we also have to be gentle with ourselves. Um, I think one of the things that folks want indigenous goddess gang to do is heal them, Mm. but we can't because we're trying to heal ourselves too, you know, and it's, we can help support it and we can give you a nudge and a push, uh, um, some good words, um, 
gentle reminders, but we have to humble ourselves and remember that we're all the same. We're all, we all have um, a lot of baggage to carry, but it lightens the load when it's done collectively. Mm-hmm. I, I, I kind of want to, I want to acknowledge that part of this conversation and what we sort of like glazed over sort of is, is that what we're, when we're talking about our women, we're talking about violence on the body mm. and that three out of four of our native women are sexually assaulted or experienced domestic violence in their lifetime. And for us, that's my sisters, my aunties, my cousins. It's the women that I love and care about. It's myself. Mm-hmm. It's my daughter, the next generation of women, and it's not okay. And so this work and this conversation is for those women, Hmm. you know, like for the, to be a part of the Me Too conversation in Mm -hmm. some ways from an indigenous perspective. And that perspective is that these, all these things are interconnected. Mm -hmm. And so we want, we want to provide not just acknowledgement of the problem, but acknowledgement of the solution. Mm. And that's why it was so important to me to, to recognize that 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 statement, healing the land is healing my body Mm. as an, as medicine, Mm. you know, as a direction to go, because sometimes when we're in the thick of it and these things are happening in our communities, you know, I just came from Nome, Alaska, and they told me that they, in their community of 1,800 people, have five rape kits come into the clinic every week. Mm. And that there's over 1,800 rape kits that haven't been processed there from the last year. Wow. You know, and so I just want to like acknowledge that I know that that's real and happening and that some of that solution is in healing the land Mm -hmm. that there's empowerment in that and offer that as a solution Mm -hmm. and I think that's what you do what you're doing Mm -hmm. and you've talked about that experience firsthand Mm -hmm. and so what are some of the the practical the pragmatic the step-by-step ways that you've done that in your own life or you can offer those words of encouragement to those women and those men you Mm -hmm. know or those two spirits Mm -hmm. that are out there and doing this work themselves right i think the 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 message should be to the men to the patriarchy how do you uphold these systems of patriarchy and how do you nourish the matriarchy like i that's definitely a question that we all have to ask ourselves um, because the answer of how we heal the mother and how we heal ourselves is within how we nourish Um, when you think of the nourishment, you know, it's a lot deeper, um, because then it ties into the ceremony. It ties into the offerings to the water that you make to the air. You know, there's just those simple things They for me, they're simple, but I acknowledge that some folks don't have that, that type of knowledge, but I encourage people to seek it. I did and look Mm -hmm. at how far it has gotten me. Um, we just have to figure out no one's going to walk our walk us to finding out these answers, you know, especially in this day and age. Um, you know, our, our knowledge keepers, our story keepers, our, some of our medicine people, you know, they're passing on and they're not going to wait around for us to come. We have to go and seek them. Um, and there's so much power and beauty within that, but it's up to us to have the courage to go and um, find these spaces and gain that knowledge. 
Um, but also, as I mentioned before, it, it, it's also something like checking your energy privilege. Like most all plastic comes from oil. And then that stems into fracking, and that's how we contribute to it. Um, you know, what type of energy are we consuming? Because it could be nuclear. If so, then there's uranium that ties into that. Um, coal is something that's dying out. Um, but look at the impacts that it has had on in indigenous people. The, the crazy thing is, is that what's happening in northern New Mexico on the New Mexican side of our territory, the same thing is happening on the Arizona side. Mm -hmm. There's another coal fire power plant called the Navajo Generating Station. And those communities are facing faced with the same exact thing, but they don't have a health impact assessment. They don't have a seat at the table. Um, and, you know, it's all led by it's all led by men. Mm -hmm. And there's a huge problem within that. And how are we going? How are we going to take a stand against that? Um, and it really comes down to how are we going to nourish the matriarchy? How are we going to nourish our mother, Mother Earth, so that we can survive um, past what's coming um, and really carry that on to future generations? Kim Smith for joining us on All My Relations. Such an honor to have you. Thank you to our supporters, the Wisteria Fund, and thank you to our incredible Patreon subscribers. We'll be back in a couple of weeks to think more about ideas of protecting the land through a large two-part episode on the movement to protect Mauna Kea in Hawaii from the massive 30-meter telescope project. We have tons of voices from the field, folks uh, who are activists, elders or kapuna, students, faculty, community members, and more. It was an incredible experience to get to be a part of the movement for a short time, and we can't wait to share these stories with you. Well... That's all we have for you. But before we go, we want to make sure to thank Sierra Sana for her incredible episode art. Please follow her on the gram. You can find her there. We'll link to her. And we want to make sure we thank Teo for doing everything that he does, the heavy lifting on sound, editing, production. And thank you for shrinking down all of my sound waves, Teo, for this loud laughter that comes out of my body uncontrollably. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see you next time. Bye. <laughs> Thanks for listening. <laughs> all my relations.